perfection. Refuge of the Competent. That's a perfect I'm, intro. I'm, I'm Gaul. And I'm Moses. I'm, yeah, there you go. I'm Ted. <laughs> All right. Wait, Gaul, what else are you? Uh, I'm living on a flat circle and experiencing Great. all of time at once. What are we talking about this week, Moses? Oh, we got some time travel on the plate tonight. Uh, we'll talk about the classic H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which, sure, let's say kicked off the that genre, at least in the Western world. And uh, what else? I don't know, some Bill and Ted. Anything goes. What is time? <laughs> Any music? Any good music inspirations? I could not <laughs> find <laughs> that much. Yeah, Built to Spills, Time Trap. Matt the Band's Dinosaurs Were Made Up by the CIA to Discourage Time Travel. I cool. found... A, a song by Blur and by Robin that may or may not be included. Uh, also, yeah, I mean, the thing I found is that, like, most of the songs, a high percentage of the songs that have Time Machine or Time Travel in the title are just about, I made a mistake and now my significant other is mad at me, if only I could go back in time. Mm, That's, like, most of boring. them. Boring. So there'll probably be a couple of those, but... Um. Do, you, do you know that uh, that Queen song called 39, which was written by Brian May, he's the guitarist, and he has a PhD in astrophysics... Uh, and that's about relativistic time travel. That is, if you go out on a spaceship near the speed of light, a year may pass for you and a hundred years will pass on Earth. So you can come back and like, oh, it's the year 39 again and I'm sad. Everyone I knew is dead. Anyone can do that. You just need enough power to go fast for a long time and then come back to Earth. Maybe we're not quite at the level where we can take enough fuel into space to get that one year to a hundred years. Yeah, we probably could. It'd just be really expensive. But yeah, you could travel a hundred years into the future if you had enough money. That's all it takes. You don't have to do anything risky like cryogenics. You just have to risk space travel. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you don't run into anything. Also, there's the time warp. That's a classic. Let's do it. Again. Everybody, you're listening to the podcast version of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. That means all the music that we talk about and then subsequently play on the radio is edited out so that we can legally produce this show and put it up on different platforms for you to enjoy. Hopefully, hopefully you're enjoying this. Who knows? Doesn't matter. Anyway, if you would like to listen to the radio edit, you're in luck because we put all those shows up on Mixcloud, mixcloud.com. Just search Last Refuge of the Incompetent 
or go to our website, lastrefugepod.com, lastrefugepod.com. You can then have access to all the links that we talk about on the show, as well as the full playlists, as well as a link to the Mixcloud for that episode. And you can check out all the cool art for the show, because depending on what platform you're listening to, there may or may not be all that cool art displayed. Anyway, I've been talking for too long, so enjoy the rest of the show. Hold me aloft, further from truth and farther from home, forlorn. Okay, so he wrote a book in 1895 called The Time Machine. Yes, Moses. He's not the first guy to talk about time travel, but oh, sure. <laughs> but he, but he's largely considered the first Western guy to come up with a machine that you get into that takes you back and forth. You, because you're the only responsible one who does research. <laughs> Did you see, read anything about what, like, how the public response to that book, how popular was the Time Machine when he wrote it, when it came out? Oh no, I didn't read anything about. I, I mean, it kind of was the first. <clears throat> thing i'm pretty sure it was one of the first things he wrote that made him launched him into the like writing sci-fi sphere so i think it was very popular yeah i think he was only really like a science journalist before yeah because then. then he did war of the worlds island of dr uh, moreau oh, yeah. and one of his other i think the invisible man all in like three yeah, or that's four right. years I've read this book a year ago, and I wrote down... I, I, remember- I read it in high school, so that was roughly a year ago. Sure, let's go with that. <laughs> and I read it a couple days ago. The first thing that I wrote down is that he has an intro to the book, and in the intro, he's writing about how the time machine, the idea for the time machine was this his take on the mythology of the Oracle, so that was the inspiration for the novel, and that the time machine is just the physical interpretation of the myth. At the at, at the time when I was reading that, I was like, oh my god, everything that has been written will be written. <laughs> Nothing is original. <laughs> There's nowhere we can go with this. Is that intro the preface he wrote for republication in like 1931 or something? Yeah. 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 I like that preface. I mean, he basically comes out comes right out and says well this isn't very good like this is this could be a lot better but um you know the book this the stuff this book could be about uh i didn't know enough to write that so instead it's this there's a nice little turn of phrase where he's talking about like stuff like time travel in books like that um had previously been done by magic and he says i realized i could create the same effect with a little bit of scientific patter (laughs) <laughs> Which uh, is, yeah, basically how a lot of science fiction works. Yeah, um, magic. Yeah, yeah patter, scientific patter <laughs> is just one baby step above techno babble. I also was reading a little bit more about him. That's all right, a baby step. So I guess he, I didn't realize this about him, but that he has strong socialist political views and he was kind of had this like contemporary angst about industrial relations and so you can kind of see that in the reading of the novel he was a big member of the fabian society i believe which is this british organization of like sort of gradualist reformist technocratic socialists definitely not like class war socialists so he was like a utopian socialist and you know eventually reason will win out and enlightened elites will run a society that works well for everyone you can see that in his writing where he's like so disappointed when he gets to a certain point in the future and it's not 
Enlightenment hasn't hasn't succeeded. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, Come on, <laughs> enlighten yourselves already. <laughs> yeah, given that, well, I mean, they do enlighten themselves. H.G. Wells impression. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, the wax cylinder recordings of H.G. Wells uh, sound exactly like that. No, he lived into like the forties. There have to be like actual <laughs> non-wax cylinder recordings of him. But no, I mean, in, in the time machine, it's not that people haven't enlightened themselves. It's like. They have, and it worked so well that they just devolved into, yeah, basically children or underground gremlins. Um, <laughs> because once they'd created a perfect society, reason just wasn't really necessary. Reason and intelligence weren't necessary anymore. Kind of shows like the very Darwinian ideas that were influencing him, which are just like right there in the book. He basically says, well, like, intelligence is only created by a need to survive. So once you've figured that out, the intelligence goes away. It is interesting to see a guy who was sort of a utopian fairly early on in his career make this this work that in some ways sort of feels like a precursor to Zardoz. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, everything <laughs> comes back to Zardoz. Big time. <laughs> oh, it it's absolutely true. does. Yeah. The like even the clothing that they are supposed to be wearing, the Eloe. Yeah, also in that preface, he sort of explains why the time machine was so um pessimistic at the time and it was like because of scientific ideas that were circulating about like the earth eventually becoming a frozen wasteland he writes like now those ideas have passed and now we know that (laughs) nothing will prevent everything from becoming perfect in the future (laughs) yeah oh it's so funny so we also watched the film version of the time machine that came out in 1960 the time machine was written in what 1895 and then the film version of it in night from 1960 has insight into the future that the book didn't have and so it's funny to see them shove in the world war one and world war yeah the nuclear stuff in the book he doesn't really have any plan on where he's going he just he ends up going further and further in the future, basically because the experience, like the sensory experience of time travel itself is kind of so thrilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets like just into it. It's an aphrodisiac, they say. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas in the movie, like he stops and it's World War One the first time he stops or World War Two. He stops the first time at the start of World War One. Because he goes to the son of his mm, friend yeah, yeah. is at the shop. So yeah, he stops on purpose. Like he only goes a little way forward, stops at World War One, stops at World War Two, stops again at World War Three, I think. And then yeah. he only keeps <laughs> he only keeps going he, and going. He totally skips Woodstock. This is what I didn't understand. He stops in 1966. The film is made in 1960, and the future that that George Paul was envisioning in 1966 was that there would be a nuclear catastrophe in London and everybody's wearing, like, shiny spacesuits. Yeah, it's yeah. your... Anti-radiation suits. Yeah, your fallout suit. Then he ends up going so far into the future because the 1966 nuclear war activates a bunch of volcanoes 
and then he has to like go really fast to escape the lava so you don't get the like time travel is kind of trippy aspect the whole cycle of war thing then like changes the whole Eloy and Morlock setup. Eloy get lured to the caverns that the Morlocks live in by like air raid sirens. There hasn't been war in I don't know thousands, eight hundred thousand years, but they have like little information rings that have told them about what war was like. So they still just mindlessly go to follow air raid sirens. They've got the Zardoz crystal ring that projects all the. <laughs> Information. Don't need books. Got the vor- uh, the tabernacle. <laughs> I love a good vortex. <laughs> Am I mistaken? Because I read it a year ago. In the book, doesn't he like go to the end of the universe? He doesn't go to the end of the universe, but he goes to the end of Earth, which isn't in the movie at all. But yeah, after mm. the yeah. after he gets his time machine back from the Morlocks, he keeps going, and like the sun has just gotten larger and larger and red. The earth gets hotter, then colder, and eventually he yeah. gets to this, like, on Earth where there's only algae, al- al- algae, <laughs> algae, um, I don't know what's Al happening. green. <laughs> it's just al green on a beach with a bunch of giant crabs. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, the crabs. Yeah. Man, I, I forgot. That, that part yeah. is vividly coming back to me. And then he goes even further, and there's only the algae, no more crabs. And then he returns back to Victorian London. But um, I remember that was an important point of the H.U., of the, the novel, or the novella. It's a short book, guys. You can read it really yeah. quickly if, you, <laughs> if you're looking I, for a I short I think it's book. public domain also, so. <laughs> yeah. Go on to Project um, Gutenberg. Li- li- LibriVox? Libri- LibriVox, if you want a, someone, a stranger, to read it to you. <laughs> Call me up. I'll read it to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in the I mean, in the movie, unlike in the book, it ends with him going back to save the Eloy from the Morlocks, particularly the infantile sex kittens (laughs) 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 Eloy, who dies in the book. Um, That was the weirdest part of the movie. That actress, by the way, was seventeen. When that was being filmed, that actor was not not close to her <laughs> <Yeah>. age, and, <laughs> and like for some inexplicable reason, which I do not remember this being in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she she's just like, how do how do women wear their hair where you, when you're from, and would I be pretty? And you're like, what? This woman is literally cattle. Like, that's literally, she's cattle. Like, she does not care about this. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, in the, in the book, he becomes friendly with her just because she's so attached. Yes. But then Hollywood has to make it, like, a love interest, of course. And then he has to go heroically save her. Yeah, they also throw in towards the beginning when he first starts time traveling. He sees the window display in the dress shop across the street from him. Sees the dresses change faster and faster. <laughs> and the voiceover has some line about, I had to see just how far like women would allow this to go. <laughs> Is that a <laughs> dress? short of these. Um, yeah, good 1960s material. The 2002 version of the Time Machine movie, which we don't need to spend much time on and his motivation in the movie was like he wanted to go back in time and stop his girlfriend from getting run over by a horse-drawn carriage (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, and then like he does save her and she gets struck hit by another carriage like the whole point was like you can't avoid this it was there was some <laughs> and so he's like oh i guess i give up on this time and then he goes to the future that's his in the 2002 time machine oh we didn't i should i'm gonna say this now we didn't we didn't disclaimer this episode we are not going to talk about the classic tropes of time travel so <laughs> Could he have saved her? Who knows? It doesn't matter. It's all fiction. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's move on. Yeah, I mean, but, so many time travel works more recently have, are you know preoccupied with paradoxes and so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. in this, it's not like it's just not an issue in the time machine at all. Did he change the past by going to the future and then coming back? We're not even going to discuss it. This is not addressed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He just he just what? sailed to an island with some weird people and then sailed back. That's what happened. <laughs> Causally, yeah. that's what happened. Because yeah, in a in a time travel work where it's about causation, obviously you don't go back to that future to save the Elaine Morlocks. You go earlier in the future to prevent mm-hmm. that from ever happening. Not in 1960s, the time machine. Anything um, dying that we want to talk about? Dying. Uh, I I just cut. Any- I had a sentence yeah. and I Anything shortened that you were it dying to, to one. Talk about? Yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. So the, the 1960 version obviously is Cold War inflected. Also, the Eloy. I mean, the Eloy are sort of very childlike or infantile in the book. In the movie, they seem even more like post-war prosperity spoiled teens. Yeah. It seems like it's sort of informed by an anxiety of, like, we provided too much material wealth to these children, and now they're just kind of... So I wonder, you know, do, you know, do you know anything about George Paul? Other than being, like, a Hungarian immigrant, uh, mm-hmm. and that he directed Rocket Ship XM that we <laughs> briefly touched on last episode. He's like a Hollywood studio guy. I don't know. Yeah. Moses, you didn't watch Time After Time. Yep, I want to hear about it. I just watched it today. I just watched it today. <laughs> it came out in 1979, and I was telling Ted earlier that I thought I was going to watch it and just be like, okay, whatever. It's I'm just going to enjoy it for being weird. But it was a really good movie. Stars I mean, it Malcolm has Mc- Malcolm McDowell, so it's got to be good. Even it's if it's true. bad, it's <laughs> got to be good. No, but it's an actually good movie. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. Malcolm, Malcolm McDowell, David Warner, and Mary Steenberger. It's where Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenberger met. And Steenbergen? Uh, Steenberger? Steenbergen? Did I see Steenberger? Is that what <laughs> yeah, I said? Twice. Eh, whatever. <laughs> um, and it's no, really no, I good. I said Steenberger. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Utica <laughs> expression. Upper Pennsylvania. <laughs> So it's basically like a movie where H.G. Wells, the character that H.G. Wells, the person, you actually like Malcolm McDowell it. plays H.G. Wells, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like in the book, in the Time Machine, they have that that scene where the unnamed inventor in in the Time Machine is inviting his like esteemed f- colleagues over for dinner to show him the Time Machine. So that happened. That's like the first scene in Time After Time, except it's actually H.G. Wells and he's, <laughs> you know, inviting his friends over. And lo and behold, one of his friends is Jack the Ripper. And Uh-oh. Um, yeah, 
So Jack the Ripper is about to get caught, and to escape that, he gets into H.G. Wells' time machine, and H.G. Wells <laughs> has to go after him, and somehow they end up in 1979 San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they specifically end up in 1979 because, um, like, H.G. Wells says, well, in three generations' time, we'll have a socialist utopia, so that's where I'm going. In but San the San Francisco yeah. part is, because I guess, because... They there's an exhibit of yeah. his stuff, and so the time machine it's, that he's it, it doesn't make it, sense. It's on loan like, from the British Museum. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's really good. Like if you haven't seen it, go see it. Recommend it. It's kind of a very sort of postmodern twist, where like that basically it should just turn into the time machine from that first scene. But then an entirely different character comes and, like, steals the narrative. It, like, plays with the actual H.G. Wells utopian socialist views, ideals in a fun way by taking them to San Francisco. Surprisingly anti-capitalist in some sense. Like, you know, it it didn't feel like they were doing that Hollywood thing where they just, like, very, I don't know, what's the word? I was watching a show just for fun called Call the Midwife. I wanted to just watch a show that's just like, tell me what it's like to be a midwife. And then for some inexplicable Mm -hmm. reason, they had an episode that was very subtly, not so subtly anti-union. And you were like, why? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you doing this? (laughs) And I feel like there's a lot of shows and movies that do that where you're like, why? But this, I don't know, this movie felt like, yeah, we're going to talk about, you know, H.G. Wells coming into this capitalist society and being disappointed that it hasn't changed. Yeah, nice. That's 1979 (laughs) for you. I don't have anything profound to say about it. Yeah, Malcolm McDowell's kind of playing against type in that movie as well. And like, there's a lot of him with his little mustache and his tweed suit being amazed by things like a McDonald's, like laminated table. (laughs) Yeah, the... I, I saw an interview with him being like, yeah, the director could have easily cast me as Jack the Ripper, but he gave me a shot. And I thought it was actually kind of endearing to see Malcolm McDowell play, like, not an evil man. <laughs> it was kind of like him in Britannia Hospital. I was like, oh, he's not the bad guy in this. It's uh, enjoyable. Although I think you have to, like, give him a mustache to, like, hide his scary face. <laughs> and I, it definitely worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you ever listened to the Dead Authors podcast? Uh, yeah, let's plug another podcast. That was <laughs> uh, com- well. It's count. It's funny. It wor- It's relevant because Paul F. Tompkins plays H.G. Wells getting into a, a time machine, and it was, a, it was a live improv show. So you'd have a comedian come on and and be a person from history, author from history, usually. And uh, you know, it's real funny. And so sometimes comedians would come on and it was clearly they were playing their favorite author and sometimes they would come on and and they clearly had no idea who the author was like maybe read the wikipedia article about them all right i'm gonna read the first page of wikipedia and wing it uh and it's funny both ways and it's and and paul f Tompkins never breaks character as hg wells he does a great job and he takes every opportunity he can to disparage jules verne which is (laughs) one of my favorite bits
we're moving forward in time. What? How is that possible? Time is a flat circle. We're doing it. My God. <laughs> Nearing one second per second. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about a book that Moses recommended to us called How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. came out in 2010 by American writer Charles Yu. It's kind of a funny tongue-in-cheek fourth wall-ish book about a, the character is a time machine repairman and he decided to just live in this time machine. He uses it to avoid dealing with his feelings about his dad, mostly. Yeah, like it's a book about time travel as a science fiction trope. Sort of the same way that H.G. Wells took magical adventure stories and added scientific patter to them. This is kind of a book about like being from an immigrant immigrant family, but using science patter. I mean, he sort of invented and sort of didn't invent a time machine with his father. And yeah. he's kind of trying to find him in time. But it's also sort of coming from another country to developed country like the U.S. is kind of a form of time travel as well in the book. In time travel fiction, like time travel is tied up with questions of memory and just narrative in general. Like it's often like the subtext and this just like brings it forward and makes it the super text, like the text text. It's funny. Mm -hmm. I was reading some like Goodreads reviews of it and there were a lot of very angry uh, sci-fi geeks <laughs> that were, they were like, this is just another example of the literary genre using sci-fi tropes to, <laughs> to just do a story about a lit, like whatever. And, and I mean, I thought that was actually kind of beautiful because it was. It seems like the author is clearly a person who appreciates the I like you know the sci-fi genre, but he was also just writing a story about what it's like to be an immigrant and exploring a story like how oh how do I tell an interest how do I write an how I how do I make this interesting I want to explore what it's like to be a son who has like a weird relationship with his mother and his father. How do I explore that? And he does it through, you know, how dare he only drops you. a couple, a couple doctor who references in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's clearly a nerd. How dare anyone use science fiction, exploit science fiction <laughs> to tell human stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sick. <laughs> it is a good book for people that are like, I don't like sci-fi. I don't read sci-fi. And people that say that, a lot of times they're saying it because there's like they're just like I don't like aliens or whatever <laughs> they just have this like stigma towards it yeah yeah and xenophobes I, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a good book for someone to be like yeah but look at this is just this is a you know it's a good intro to sci-fi sort of what if they also hate fourth wall breaking <laughs> well then that book is yeah. not for they're them they're hopeless <laughs> Yeah, if you hate literary postmodernism, then this book probably isn't for you. Definitely do not audiobook it, because there's, like, pictures that help tell the story. There's, yeah, there's some graphs. Oh, yeah, there's some diagrams. great diagrams. Gotta love a good space-time diagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he obviously, you can't do science, like, science patter that well without having an obvious, like... Affection for both science fiction and science itself. He uh, understands the science behind it. And he even like, we will have it in the show because I'll send it to you. I forgot to put it in the outline. One of the footnotes is a YouTube link to someone explaining this phenomenon. Wormholes? 
No, this phenomenon of it's like... It's not Kip Thorne's wormhole video? It basically, it's like a video of someone watching a clock, and the woman is hooked up to electrodes on her brain to measure her brain, and the the experimenter is like, I want you to just click this button when you whenever you want to. And it's recording that, and, and it records the brainwaves, and it shows that you make the decision to do something before you actually do something. It's this whole idea of, like, what are you actually in control of? Like, what are you actually consciously doing? Did you mean you do something before you make the decision? To <laughs> yes, make it? Yeah. yes, sorry, yeah. Yeah, like, in the book, basically, like, time travel is only a matter of grammar, really. Like, the time machine itself seems to run on... Like a grammar yeah, engine lit- with a literary tense. Yeah. <laughs> it's just got to conjugate everything, and then you're in the past. Oh, that was a, that was a great bit. I enjoyed that. There's a line about uh, within a science fictional space, memory and regret are, when taken together, the set of necessary and sufficient elements required to produce a time machine. And there's yeah, like little joke joke bits where like his science fictional universe is like owned by Microsoft um, or like Time Warner, which is a subsidiary of Microsoft. No. It's, it's well established that you can't change the past because it's already happened. So there's a bit where he's on his time machine repair duty and he just has to like fix Luke Skywalker's son's time machine because he tried to go back to kill his dad and it just doesn't work and it's never going to work. Very metatextual. Yeah, it's fun. It's a fun book. What we need to do at the end of this show is just a compilation of all the times all Gaul has just said, yeah, it's fun, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) I had a good time! (laughs) Totally okay. Do you have anything to say about Doctor Who? I've never watched Doctor Who. It's the only British television show you haven't seen. (laughs) (laughs) That is absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. And it's probably the only one that I could just access on my own without having to get my friend Ted to do internet things for me. Who's that? What? Huh? I've never met him. Yeah, I uh, don't know. There are multiple time Teds. <laughs> <laughs> Ted regenerates every uh, so often. He's always got a companion with him to travel through the internet verse. I'm just yeah, making it's a fun. <laughs> it's <laughs> a fun show. Is that a Doctor Who joke? <laughs> um, yeah, just a, it's it's a fun sci-fi show. Occasionally they'll get into the cool sci-fi or the time travel paradox stuff. Most of the time that doesn't matter. I'm really into Quantum Leap. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, oh boy. (laughs) I don't know what it is about that show, but it just, it hurts me. (laughs) So does it? I don't know. It it is pretty, like, earnest in its it's emotional... uh, Part of it might just be that I associate Scott Bakula with uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Prize, yeah, yeah, which is a very painful television program. I mean, I definitely saw Quantum Leap when it was on reruns of the Sci Fi Channel before Enterprise came out, so he, I didn't have that association when I watched uh, it. Back to Bacula, (laughs) that was the only I didn't really, really watch sci fi shows growing up. I think Quantum Leap was, I think my mom just liked thought scott bacula was handsome that's it do you know it's what i mean true. it is <laughs> so that's i mean it, it had these sci-fi elements but it was also very like very much in the same line as you know murder she wrote or all these other kind of shows yeah. where uh someone just shows up and solves a weird little mystery but yeah i probably um, will throw in some early doctor who 
uh, soundtrack music on this episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, just some, some really good BBC Radiophonic workshop. Oh, nice. Stuff. Delhi Derbyshire, etc. I did watch Bill and Ted face the music. <laughs> yeah, I still have it. Uh, my Christine and I we watched the first two recently, and so we haven't watched the latest one yet. Nice, but Clap. yeah. Speaking of fun time travel, just go nuts with it. <laughs> Silk crates. <laughs> yeah, they definitely do not care about any of the paradoxes in in this in that movie. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's fun. I tend to re- I tend to often dislike time travel plots just because they try so hard to deal with the grapple with all the complexities and just ultimately fail so when you just don't take it seriously at all yeah. i feel like that's one of the mm-hmm. better approaches yeah the, yeah mm-hmm. at this point like anything anything that takes it too seriously i can still laugh at yeah the, the new bill and ted i mean it mostly made me think about like what the difference is between being cheesy and being corny <laughs> yeah because yeah it was hard to i kept trying to think of it like i kept trying to imagine this film if it was released like grainier and released in the 90s and mm-hmm. would it feel the same mm-hmm. do you know what i mean yeah like the original two bill and ted movies are i think cheesy but not corny they yeah. just have like this goofy innocence to them and the newer one is also cheesy i just couldn't decide whether or not it was corny or not I think it's hard. It's hard to be goofy and innocent when your main actors are in their fifties. <laughs> I mean, they're two guys who perform goofy and innocent very well. Like, there's something about just being like a dumb teen movie and not aspiring to anything more that allowed the first two to be like cheesy without being corny. Going back to source material so many decades later yeah there's that kind of like directness and purity that's like harder to get to i still liked a lot of the things that they tried to do with it it was cute it was a cute film it got me doing a deep dive on alex winter (laughs) he's a cool dude (laughs) (laughs) and the daughters did sort of impressions slash pastiche slash homage performances of keanu reeves and alex winter the keanu Um, reeves daughter was good she did a good like even the way he like walks, like his weird. Uh... For the listener, Gal is doing some excellent shoulder work. Right now. <laughs> oh, is this a podcast? Is this, is this on the radio? No, yeah. <laughs> it's a radio show. It's not, not just a podcast. You're right. Yeah, I did kind of like the recurring joke about the killer robot who goes to hell. Oh, he was great. That actor is really good. He was really fun. Anthony Kerrigan. Yeah, yeah and they really like they really go hard on like, yep, this is the a joke we're doing. Yeah, I do. For those of you that are more that are listening to this show and are and are so deeply disappointed that we're not talking about paradoxes and <laughs> oh no, I've slept with my mom or oh no, I've killed my grandfather. There's a there's a pretty decent Encyclopedia Britannica article uh, <laughs> about time travel. <laughs> Let me just wrap it up for you really easily, and I'll, I'll link to it on the website. Also, I just watched this morning. If it's if it's this is your type of thing, there's a very sweet little BBC documentary miniseries called The Real History of Science Fiction, and they have a special on time travel. It's about forty five. Oh, that sounds nice. Oh, 
That was actually one of my favorite bits in Bill and Ted Face the Music. Is at the beginning, the they're at a wedding where the younger wife of one of their dads in the first movie is now marrying Keanu Reeves' brother. Yeah, after having married Keanu Reeves' father. Um, so they go through, they basically spell out very explicitly how everyone in the family is now experienced through this this remarriage, like various time travel paradoxes, like Ted's dad is now his own son. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a fun little shout out to time travel tropes. I'd like to bring up that German sci-fi sh- time travel show called Dark, which takes these paradoxes very, like very seriously. But it's just a blast. I mean, it's a it's a soap opera, but with time travel, and the whole the whole bit is that everyone like like there's no comedy in the show. It's just like, oh no, murder and, and adultery. And then, uh, and it's a small town in Germany and everyone is cheating on each other. And then it turns out through all a complicated time loop, everyone is cheating on each other with each other's grandparents and all this other stuff. So I highly recommend that. Like, that is a strong recommendation. I think that shows a blast to watch in a very different way from Bill and Ted. And I wanted to point out one other thing that it, it gets rid of or that this show just very carefully steps around is that it's a time travel show set in Germany, and the constraint that the writers have made is that, oh, well, this time hole that you crawl into, this cave, aka time hole, you can only go in 33-year intervals. So it starts in 2019, and then you go back to 86, and then you go back to 53, then you go back Mm. to 21. Just just skip over a certain era. (laughs) (laughs) And don't worry about what you can change or not change. (laughs) It's not a big deal. You can't kill Hitler. No, no, we don't, we don't bring up any of this stuff. We just, we just only time travel in 33 year increments and that's just where we ended up. It's a series all about triads. I finished, I finished that series like earlier this week. Um, oh, congratulations. <laughs> takes all those time travel questions to a really far extent and then basically I think concludes like, no, it's too complicated. Just. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's, it, they very clearly loop themselves into a, into the bottom of a pool or something. If time travel happens, use time travel to make it not exist, because it's mm. more trouble than it's, it's just... worth. Yeah, I, um, Moses uh, recommended that I watch the show Farscape two weeks ago, and now all I've been doing with my life is watching the show Farscape. <laughs> Great show. A sci-fi original series. It is. 1999 or four seasons. It is so good. I'm going to do a little rant and I might keep this in. I love it. No, it's one of my favorite shows. First of all. And (laughs) before you go into yours, I want to say that I think the the episode that hooked me the most was, it's in like the first five episodes. There's a time loop episode and uh, he keeps seeing versions of the future and trying to, you know, fix it and he can and it all goes wrong and it's funny and it wraps up pretty well. And he just goes more and more insane throughout that episode and then as you watch the series it's a guy who got stranded in another galaxy and it's just how contact with aliens drives this guy more and more insane it's a great show yeah now it's my rant now it's gall's gall's okay my rant so i watched it and i thought oh wow this is like so literary like it's clearly just like a bunch of people that are really into sci-fi writing thought experiments each episode 
And then I read up on it, and that's, like, the whole point of it. Brian Henson and this other guy, I forget his name. He's got a weird weird last name. They were, like... Rockney S. O'Bannon yeah, was the show, it. head of the show, showrunner. Yeah. And then, yeah, they, Henson made, of the Jim Henson Company made all the aliens, and they're incredible. And they wanted to make a really literary show. So it's clearly, like, for people that are really into sci- sci-fi. And then I was, like, also watching some interviews with them, and they were, like... I guess it was run the way it was so it's filmed in Australia. So everybody has like really weird fake American slash British accents. <laughs> it's all Australian yeah, actors. It, it oh, makes welcome. space sound awesome. It's great. You, you are on my spice. ship. <laughs> anyway, it's really good. <laughs> they kind of ran the entire production of it very an- anarchically. Like, or it just like there, sure there was hierarchy, but there wasn't, like, if you were a grip on the show and you had an idea for the show, you could just be like, I have an idea, and they would put it in. And, like, awesome. the main... Yeah, and, and you can kind of tell, like, because it's just, like, clearly people that are really into cool stuff. And then mm-hmm. the main guy, John Crichton, the actor that plays him, Ben Browder, you're, like, watching this thing, and you're like, yeah, he's, like, handsome guy. Like, I'm curious why he never really, like was anything else in anything else but sci-fi stuff. And it's because he's, like, a legit huge nerd and like that's like what he really wants to be in anyway good show recommend it you've probably already heard about it farscape i don't know i feel like not that many people have uh anyway i'm sure hg wells would have approved of this uh set (laughs) yeah if you said if you said farscape to me it just sounds like a like a late 90s mmo or something um. Oh no! It's <laughs> and it's is that RuneScape. Uh, that's probably what I'm thinking of. <laughs> there's great puppets too. Good puppet acting. And there, I think there's only a couple that have time loops, but still good. <laughs> to bring it but relevant to I mean, the show, it's about it's about wormholes. Also, <laughs> wormholes. You there's actually time. a lot of weird time stuff that they talk about. On the show. Doesn't matter. I'm done talking about Discovery. <laughs> Yourself wondering, wait a minute, didn't you guys say you edited out all the music for the show? Well, then who is this intoxicating voice that I've been listening to? Oh, well, that is none other than Sarah Stanley, aka Focus Bird. Surprise, surprise, a good friend. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? And she gave us permission to use all her music, and if you like it, go check her out on Bandcamp. Bandcamp search focus bird or like i said earlier if that's too hard for you just go to lastrefugepod.com you can find links to all our music there thanks for listening the First season of Dark makes you think it's going to be much more about nuclear power, anxieties around that, and like mm-hmm. uh, anxieties about the future and climate change. But really, it seemed to mostly be about the incest taboo and it's infidelity. Just, like, <laughs> just a small town soap opera <laughs> where the time loops are really emotion loops. Basically, <laughs> okay. makes you think. Yep. Yeah, it's basically a show, like, if everyone, if all of the narrators from the songs about time travel that are just about, like, wanting to undo the mistake in your relationship, 
if you gave all of those song narrators a time machine, this is the disaster that they would create. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I forgot to say this at the beginning of the episode. When I was researching time travel music, the other genre that I found was just like nerd comedy that was all about time travel. <laughs> and I was like, none of these songs are good musically. Like maybe the lyrics are okay, but like I also want to. You're talking about a, maybe a track from MC Hawking, that guy who <laughs> used the. <laughs> Nerdcore hip hop. Yeah. The yeah. Stephen Hawking computer voice to do rap songs. <laughs> yeah, I listened to the album. Big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a Weird Al one also about time travel. Well, well, now I'm embarrassing myself by not knowing immediately. All right, people. Thanks for listening. I hope you no had worries. a good time. There's no way of knowing because you guys do not write to us. <laughs> <laughs> Why should they? We have to earn it, Gaul. <laughs> Uh, We've been going for 55 minutes, and only like 10 minutes of that is Farscape, so. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? How dare you? I'm going to talk about Farscape every episode now, just so you know. You got to keep on the update. Yeah, I mean, I, I got my wife watching it, and she's into it, so. It's genuinely really good. It's very good. Now, if you want a show that's tougher to watch, Lex. L-E-X-X. <laughs> I love that show, but it is definitely harder to continue. Weirder. Mm-hmm. Dumber in certain ways. Weirder <laughs> in others. So next next week, join us. We'll be watching some French science fiction films and talking about them. Send us an email at thelastrefugeoftheincompetent at gmail.com. Check us out at lastrefugepod.com where all this information and more lives. Leave us a voicemail, 805-253-3091. 805-253-3091. Oh, you know, the time travel in 12 Monkeys. I always enjoyed that because they were just so bad at it. It's like, <laughs> oh, whoops. I think I really enjoy sci-fi where there's, there's a high concept thing going on, but they just totally screwed up through sheer human incompetence. <laughs> or they're just way out, you know, out of their depth. So like the, the time travel in 12 Monkeys is one example. And also it was nice that they gave up and or they explicitly said, we're not trying to change the past because that's stupid we just want to go find something so we can help our find some find out some information but also i really like the uh what what were we talking about recently just something where astronauts are just totally blowing it oh where we the the semiosis book where they we have the humans settling this new world and they just immediately screw everything up and lose all their food crash their pods that had their food replicator (laughs) so funny uh and all the Especially the newest Alien movies. Like, that's just... You don't even need a plot. It's just, oh, yeah, send an astronaut in there, see what he does, and then he immediately gets eaten. <laughs> or sets himself on fire or something. I mean, come on. These dumb astronauts. Uh, sweet dreams? <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to add to that, team? I mean, you made it to the end without me doing a complaining about Star Trek section. You did get it. We did get a Star Trek complaining about Star Trek section. Yeah. uh, I just briefly (laughs) mentioned um, how bad Enterprise is, but I didn't didn't get into it. Oh, Oh, that's right. It all devolved into a time war, didn't it? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. With like so many prequels, the Charles Yu book like makes narrative and time travel, like the link between the two, very explicit. But it also seems to come up in the fact that like prequels and reboots seem to be obsessed with time travel. Um, oh, yeah. Which particularly for Star Trek, Enterprise devolved into a stupid time. Ugh, 
just an awful time travel ne- arc. Awful J.J. Abram reboots use time travel yeah, to create their do. new timeline. Discovery, yep. which is also a prequel that came out more recently. By the second season, time travel narrative. Yeah. Something that people who are like working with existing narratives just seem to be irresistibly drawn to. Whatever. And I wish they would stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I feel like I'm in a time loop because I'm keep trying to say sweet dreams and tears <laughs> and you guys so keep. is that is that is that young sheldon show is that a t- is that i want that to devolve into a time travel let me know if that ever happens yeah if young sheldon invents a time machine to make um what what is it the big bang oh i'm thinking somebody theory. shows up to kill young sheldon yes someone <laughs> like in like a Co- looper old yeah. Sheldon. Yeah. young sheldon yeah, shows up to I'm kill thinking. old sheldon yes yeah, I hope we got some fan fiction to write, team, <laughs> to make sure that the Big Bang Theory never happens. Yeah, <laughs> that's what young children should be about. Oh, that show is so bad. <laughs> ah, well, sweet dreams, competitors. <laughs> Science fiction.